Hi there, and welcome to Fuds and Film. This is one of our compare and contrast episodes where we take two films and we compare them and contrast them because we will not be caught for the Trade Descriptions Act and breaking all thereof. <laughs> we can be accused of many things, but that will not be one of them. <laughs> I'm Drew. With me tonight, Scott. Hello! And tonight, for absolutely no reason that I'm aware of, other than that it was two films that we fancied watching, which is often the case for this segment, we're going to look at some bank robbery films. Because why not? Yes. I'm going to guess that the answers are resounding no, Scott, but do you have anything particular to say about the bank robbery genre? I think they can be good films, and also bad films, and sometimes in between, depending on the quality of the particular film based around the bank heist. And there, ladies and gentlemen, is a sort of (laughs) incredible insight and profound thought um, for which you come to us. Don't say we do nothing for you. Just keep it inside your head. We know it's true, okay? (laughs) Without further ado, then, let's just crack on. So, what was in the water in 1970s Hollywood? Something special, I think. Maybe water being at the heart of Chinatown was a little nod to the truth. Whatever it was, it meant that so many of the films made in that era were amongst the greatest ever of their type, and few, if any, have been bettered. Matched, maybe, but seldom surpassed. Various entries in the crime genre, and its attendant sub-genres, are prime examples, and it is one such in the Heist Gone Wrong group that we're looking at now. Sidney Lumet's Dog Day Afternoon features one of Al Pacino's finest performances, in a decade full of outstanding Pacino performances as he plays Sonny Vortzik, a real person who attempted to rob a bank in Brooklyn in 1972 in order to pay for his boyfriend's sex change operation. On a sunny afternoon in sweltering Brooklyn, three armed men enter a bank as it's getting closed up for the day. Things go almost immediately south, however, as one of the trio declares that he can't go through with it, leaving Pacino's Sonny and John Cazale's Sal to carry out the robbery alone. Soon, Sonny's burning of the traveller's cheque register draws unwanted attention to the bank, and the bank robbery turns into a hostage situation, with TV crews, crowds of onlookers and a harassed detective trying to resolve the situation while being undermined by other police units out with his control. Dog Day Afternoon has undoubtedly lost some of its power since its release in 1975, removed as it is from the simmering racial, sexual, economic and political tensions of mid-70s New York City and its release only four years after the Attica prison riot. But it's nonetheless captivating. Pacino is superbly droll. While we're always cognizant of the fact that he's an armed bank robber, he engenders a great deal of sympathy and makes us believe that he's impetuous rather than malevolent, and genuinely has no desire to harm anyone. It is also nice to be reminded, because, let's face it, it's tremendously easy to forget, quite how much subtlety Pacino can bring to a role. Yes, that's right, I am telling you that Al Pacino can be subtle. It's true, you know. Actually, as an aside, I wonder, because he's famous for his roles, sort of being all of the Pacino, quite a lot. Hmm. You you began measuring his performances in levels of Scarface. Yes. Uh, on which scale this barely registers, I think, yeah. <laughs> in that way. He's quite famous for having been quite into method acting and had like very intense performances, but intense like emotionally, not just in terms of shouting. And I wonder if either he forgot or he just found that so tiring that he just went for, well, I'll just shout at everything because that's a lot easier and it's not going to destroy my mind. Yes. <laughs> As he did in 12 Angry Men, director Lumet has provided a masterclass in increasing tension amid sweltering confines. 
There's no music and all the atmosphere comes from Lumet's direction and Dee Dee Allen's editing. It's so easy to convince yourself that you can feel the sizzle of the heat of the pavement or the muggy interior of the bank alongside the characters. Lumet also allows his cast to inhabit their characters and Frank Pearson's excellent script to breathe, allowing for moments of humanity and humour that never feel forced but are rather the believable products of real people being in that stressful situation. It's almost farcical at points, from the teller chiding Sonny that he's not a very good planner and did he just rob the bank on a whim? The guy who bailed early complaining about how he'll get home if he can't take the getaway car? More than one teller seeming to be considerably more concerned by the fact Sonny has a potty mouth than a loaded rifle. Sonny himself being cheered on by the crowds gathered outside. And finally too, the husband of one of the staff calling the bank and asking if the robbery will take long. (laughs) There is though always an undercurrent of tension. It's clear that while the bank staff may be sharp-tongued, they're also just trying to cope with their situation and the facts of loaded guns, a slowly unravelling Sonny and an on-edge Sal are never far from their thoughts. And the moments of levity feel natural, real, earned, equipped to cut the tension as a result of situation, not script. The characters, robbers and hostages together share a camaraderie and understanding that comes from similar status and prospects rather than, in many films, accelerated Stockholm Syndrome. One other thing worth noting is quite how progressive Dog Day Afternoon is, for a 1970s major studio picture anyway. While the news reports change, after more information leaks out of the situation to emphasising that two homosexuals have taken hostages in a bank, Sonny's being bisexual is treated almost matter-of-factly, and there is little gay stereotyping, certainly not of the type particularly prevalent in the 1970s. There is, perhaps, a slight femininity to Chris Sarandon's Leon, Pacino's boyfriend, but while there is a momentary tittering from the assembled cops when he tells Charles Durning's detective Moretti that he and Sonny were married by a priest, it is otherwise regarded dispassionately. Dog the Afternoon is intense, naturalistic and brilliant, and, in unexpected ways, heroic and hopeful. A film I have always loved, and one I'm thoroughly delighted to find I enjoyed just as much after what is possibly a 15 year gap since I last saw it. So Scott, I love this film, are you going to break my heart and tell me it did nothing for you, or do you similarly enjoy it? No, um, I, I like it an awful lot. Uh, this is actually the first time I'd seen this, because uh, another subcurrent of these shows is <laughs> getting round to watching films that I've been into for ages and not quite got to, despite owning it for what? 20 odd years or something, I don't know. Yeah, so it's really, really good. Um, I really like the slow boil of it. The only slight negative that came up for me is that at some point, my brain decided that um, Al Pacino's voice in this is, sounds a bit like Adam Sandler, and that's not something you really want to bring to mind when you're watching any film, <laughs> and uh, did, did hamper my enjoyment of it a little bit. Well, thank you for destroying all future viewings of this movie, <laughs> but at least up until this point, I had never done that, I never had that thought, so I was okay yeah. until now. I, mean, I don't watch a lot of Adam Sandler films, so it's what I—it's maybe more what I think Adam Sandler sounds like rather than <laughs> what he actually does. So I'm not sure. But yeah, that, to be honest, I don't think I've got an awful lot more to add to what you're saying. There is is a really effective film. Really does a great job of cranking up tension. It's you know along with the sort of sweat levels of everyone involved. <laughs> Probably the unsung's maybe not the right term, but uh, John Cazale's performance in this is does a really good job of sort of underpinning all that tension because he's the one that you feel the danger may come from. Yeah, why you say that? Because it's it's Al Pacino's film. 
Right. Um, and mm. actually, John Casale has very little screen time if you think about it. Yeah. But you never forget that, that character's there. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's, you're never you're never forgetting that that character's around. It's not like you, sometimes you'll find a film which is so dominated by one actor and it'll come mm. back. And, oh, yeah, that guy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he's made enough of an impact right from the beginning that it's like you're always, you're always aware that he's there. Mm. And it, it, yeah, as I say, it does a great job of building uh, across the whole of the, field, the film, and it's just a really effective character piece. It threw me for a bit of a loop at the start, actually, because uh, I was expecting the actual bank heist bit of it to be a bit more involved, whereas that's pretty much over within the first, you know, ten to fifteen minutes, maybe. Yeah, it's uh, very low key, isn't it? Yeah, uh, and it's pretty much after that. Although it's obviously a hostage situation, it's really more a character piece by that point, and it's really delving into. Uh, Sonny's character and how that goes through the, the lens of this this event um, does a really good job of it. Just lots of interesting pieces pieces. Some of it apparently that whole bit where he's shouting about Attica and all the cousins wasn't pretty much improvised. He was told to say that by an assistant director as he was coming out the door, which is strange because yeah. it seems like one of the pivotal moments of the <laughs> film uh, where he kind of Sonny goes from you know, being just another robber to almost being a, a folk hero on, in the yeah. making with that kind of thing. And for that, and presumably also the response of the crowd to be just done on the spur of a moment, pretty savvy filmmaking, as yeah. we said. And also, yes, there's, a, there's two really notable moments of improvisation in because the the line about and it's it's almost funny, but it's kind of tragic at the same time. The line about wanting uh, Sal wanting to go to Wyoming, yeah, was yeah. also improvised by John Casale on the day, mm-hmm. and it's like. It kind of, but it's just perfect. It gets that character too. It's like he's the actual, the real Sal was fourteen years old, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> John Casale, there's like this character is he's kind of tragic. He's pathetic. He's he doesn't really know what he's doing in life. Doesn't know he's not well educated or anything. And like, yeah. So you have a wee kind of smirk when he says, when Al Pacino asks him what country he wants to go to, he says Wyoming. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it's like, yeah, that's kind of tremendously sad. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that yeah. and that performance sells that character. You can. Uh, so that's impressive. Yes, great performances all around, really. But yes, as uh, as much as it is Al Pacino's show, it's, uh, there doesn't seem like a weak link anywhere in it. So it works quite well. Even the characters with only a few lines do quite well in, in building the film as a whole. And obviously, it's Pacino's. Well, I say obviously it's Pacino's best performance. It's probably Pacino's best performance. He's got a few of them, uh, which yeah, it's easy that. to forget these days. But yeah, he does have quite a few of them. Uh, but this is probably his most, um, it's probably his most nuanced performance at a push, yeah, I think. Yeah. yeah. That's why I was very much buying on, but like the, he can do subtlety and it's so easy to forget. I mean, he won the Oscar, didn't he, for Scent of a Woman, but mm. by that point, all real subtlety had gone out his performance and it was all very much the hoo-ha stuff that yeah. has become the <laughs> stock and trade of people doing impressions of Pacino. Yeah. Yes. 70s Pacino is, is very much my favourite. And, and just look at the the huge list of things you have to choose from the Panic in Needle Park and Cruising and Godfather Parts 1 and 2 except actually it's two crime films which are probably my two favourite Pacino roles and that's this and Serpico yeah. on either sides of the law in each yeah it's, it's easy I think if you are not really familiar with Pacino pre probably pre set of women certainly maybe from Sea of Love backwards Scarface is quite famous, but it's more like that actually fitted that role. Hmm. Whereas later, just it seems to have lost some of what just made him so special. It's still incredibly watchable, but it's never the same quality of performance. 
So anybody like who knows Pacino more from the Center of Women stuff onwards really should come back and look at particularly seventy stuff because it's just fantastic. It's like this is why Pacino was a famous actor. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it wasn't because he was getting some kid to drive him through or let him drive a Ferrari while blind through New York and going hoo ha and stuff and talking about a woman having a great ass and things and heat. It's like it was this. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, Yeah, I, I could watch a Pacino like this all day, every day. Also just going back to the the direction to it, it's also part of the script. And it's why there's actually quite a strong parallel with Twelve Angry Men. It's like the mm. you know, the the kind of boiler room feeling of the tension, um, the confined spaces for the yeah. most part. Because like Twelve Angry Men, it really only takes place in two locations. A three if you count the outside of the bank as a different location from the inside, but there's the the barber shop where the police are set up and there's the bank. Yeah. And then with the exception of Sonny, you hear or I guess maybe Leon as well because he's telling his story about how he went a bit mad after because Pacino's character was just so intense and he wanted to get away from it and he ended up in the mental hospital. None of the characters have backstories. Mm. Yeah. And they don't need them, don't want them. So many films, certainly if there's like the, the hostage negotiator cop or something, there's got to be the the backstory of either he's in trouble and he's trying to redeem himself or he hates his bosses or, you know, the the chief's got my ass in a sling sort of thing and or he's got some sort of troubled home life or something. No, he's just there. And Charles Dunn does this great job of, again, in a role where every, in a film where everybody is basically subservient to Pacino. Yeah. Kind of thankless. And he's just, you know, he's, he's kind of frustrated by the things going on around him, but you never find out his home life and it's not necessarily the story, but so often people feel the need to put that in. Yeah. And there's just this economy to the film you know what you need to know there's nothing extraneous and you just it just builds attention and it's just uh, I don't know, it's just fantastic Sidney Lumet is such a great filmmaker and and then things to the the way things shake out first of all the there's supposed to be a kiss between Al Pacino and Chris Sarandon outside of the bank and Al Pacino wasn't comfortable with that mm-hmm. and that's fine that's not a, a judgment anybody it's not easy to kiss someone of the same sex if you're not attracted to them I know it's acting but still so hopefully it's more just that than any sort of homophobia or anything. Like one would imagine he wouldn't take on the role of a gay character if he was homophobic. But I'm going to yeah. go down a rabbit hole if I start talking about that. <laughs> it's not really relevant to this. But that actually then became this talk on the telephone for which Chris Sarandon was Oscar nominated and in his relative role, he's also fantastic. But it's just the, what's wonderful editing too because Frank Pearson, the screenwriter, said that that had originally been written as two monologues and mm. then it's just cut together as a really believable conversation just by D.D. Allen's great editing. Yeah. So, yeah, and then that's what happens. You, know, you get a good editor to get you Oscar nominations. You know, they're great people. <laughs> and very much uh, underrated editors. I think people don't think about it enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's so easy to think of things like pacing and say, it's, oh, well, the director's pacing it well. It's probably not the director in most cases. It's probably the editor who at least yeah. did the bulk of that work. So, yeah. I mean, in the best ones... They've worked together. Yeah. The editor's taking the lead from the director, or the editor might suggest something to the director's like, that's great. You know, it's, it's a collaborative effort, but yes, yeah. I think the it's a particularly unglamorous part of the film industry, and certainly un, oh, underappreciated. Yeah. And certainly in the 70s, a right pain in the ass, if you're doing yeah. it with actual film, rather than a new editor, like a yeah. Premiere Pro or whatever. And, so, and I know um, Anne 
Coates was kind of annoyed that once it became really seen as a really important art form that men tried to take over. But one of the few areas of, and not many famous editors, I think most people only couldn't name editors, but of the few that people might be able to name that are particularly famous, the majority of the really famous names are women, which is fantastic. In <laughs> um, an underappreciated field, the fact that the one, a few of the real standouts are women is great. Uh, but still, in general, the field is underrepresented. But so it's Anne Coates, who sadly died recently, Dee Dee Allen, and Thelma Shoemaker, of course, who's famously worked so well with Scorsese. Mm. Goodfellas wouldn't be half the masterpiece it was without her incredible editing. Yeah, yeah. That was definitely a rabbit hole, but it's a rabbit hole in terms of <laughs> praising editors, which is an, uh, I'm absolutely fine to go down that one. So we decided Dog Day Afternoon is good. Yes. <laughs> Okay, so we're going to move on to another bank robbery film. Entirely coincidentally, another one set in New York, with another filmmaker famous for his film set in New York, and that's Spike Lee's Inside Man. Take it away, Scott. Yes, this 2006 Spike Lee joint takes a similar framework of cops surrounding robbers and turns it into an altogether more mysterious affair than the character piece of Dog Day Afternoon. Uh, We are introduced to Denzel Washington's detective Keith Frazier, with the cloud of an internal affairs investigation hanging over him, but he's nonetheless called on to lead to the police response to a bank robbery turned hostage situation. Clive Owens, Dalton Russell and his gang have rolled up to a Manhattan bank, announced their intentions and got to work dressing the hostages in the same boiler suit get-up as they support, but don't seem all that obsessed with the cash, strangely enough. The bank's owner, Christopher Plummer's Arthur Case, is worried about the situation for more than just the obvious reasons and hires a fixer in the shape of Jodie Foster's Madeline White to see that certain things stay buried. The awkward part in all of this turns out to be Detective Fraser, who understandably does not like being told to look the other way or to stop pursuing paths of investigation. Balancing this along with managing the response to Russell's changing demands, even as his suspicions of their ultimate intent grows, all the way to the unexpected ending where they appear to melt away into a crowd without having taken anything. Of course, things are not what they seem, and the path to the ultimate reveal of what's going on has a few twists and turns and is never less than entirely engaging. It helps, of course, that so much of the film features Denzel Washington and Clive Owen, both of whom had happily watched reading a phone book, and it operates supporting cast. Uh, Foster, Plummer, Willem Dafoe, Joey Elijah Four. there's no one slacking on this production. And uh, Spike Lee, as a filmmaker, is someone I always intend to watch more of, but somehow never get round to. Uh, so I'm not quite well placed to judge the Spike Lee-iness of this film. <laughs> um, but all I can say is it's really well shot, paced and edited, so that's a good thing, I suppose. I'm a little surprised to see that Russell Gerritz wrote this. Surprised because this is a very interesting story with snappy dialogue, and he also wrote Righteous Kill, which was very much the opposite. <laughs> and, and one of those Pacino performances that we, uh, we, we, we've tried not to speak of recently. Is um, Righteous Kill the one where he and Robert Bobby De Niro turn yeah. up and um, have basically just turned up for the paycheck quite clearly? It was, yes. It was, I think at the time we concluded that it was C-list material with A-list actors yes. for some reason. It was bad. It was very bad. And it was going off the short of splack of uh, eight, eight minutes as well, which was another Pacino misfire. Yeah, two particularly <laughs> egregious Pacino outings within, well, certainly within the same year, I think they were, around there? Maybe Months, I think. Yeah. Like, yeah, at least when they got released here. But nonetheless, um, there's perhaps little in the way of capital A artistry here for Inside Man to echo down the ages, but it's just a really enjoyable high-space mystery and a great way to spend a couple of hours. So I recommend that you do so. Yes, I would recommend the same. <laughs> Spike Lee also, I, I very much want to, to watch more of it. 
I've only watched a handful of his films. I watched Do the Right Thing, which is one of those films that just, I wasn't entirely convinced I actually liked it the first time I saw it. Mm. And then it's just, the more you even think about it, the more I like that film. It's just so raw and angry. Yeah. And I've seen, so she's got to have it. Well, the name right? I'm going to doubt yes. myself because it's been a while. And, well, that is uh, the name of it, yes, but I've not yeah, seen it. I had actually forgotten that I'd seen it. I saw it on Channel 4 years and years ago until recently. I was like, oh, yeah, I have seen that. And 25th Hour, she's really great. Of the ones I've seen so far, though, I mean, he's such a famous, or so famous for being a New York film director. This all of the admittedly incredibly limited amount of Spike Lee stuff that I've seen is quite comfortable with the least New York-y. Yeah, I mean, it's in New York, but it could have been anywhere. It could have been yeah. anywhere, exactly. Yeah, whereas, for instance, Dog Day Afternoon very much was a New York film. Yeah. The, the neighbourhood, the people, the way they spoke, the, the humour and things was very New York. Inside Man isn't, could be anywhere, but it shows that Spike Lee wasn't just doing, like, just political films or anything. Because it's, it's largely apolitical, this film. There's, like, the, the mystery behind Christopher Plummer's thing is politics, but old politics. Yeah. And not in the way that Spike Lee is typically done. No, no way. I've seen Malcolm X. I knew there was something mm. else I was forgetting. How could I forget Malcolm X? Sorry. Uh, <laughs> my head's all over the place tonight. Uh, Malcolm X is awesome. And I've seen He Got Game. So, wait, I'm an idiot. I've seen tons <laughs> of Spike Lee films. I just don't remember. <laughs> I haven't seen any Spike Lee films apart from like the dozen that I've seen. <laughs> Did you watch the remake of Old Boy? No, yeah. uh, obviously not because I like Old Boy. Yeah, so. <laughs> it's. It's fine, but also just a remake of Old Boy, so just yeah. no, no particular need for it. But yeah, that's fine too. No, I've seen plenty of stuff, including the four-hour documentary about the floods in New Orleans hmm. twelve years broke, ago. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I've done tons of Spike Lee films. So um, ignore what I said <laughs> earlier um, because I've liked every one of the ones that I've seen. But yeah, it's it's shown that he has. I guess he has in lots of things, but. So he can turn his, his skilled filmmaker can do any sort of film, which is always good. It's not got stuck in one type of groove. Yeah. But he is... Sorry, I'm just a completely blindsided myself by realising I've seen like a dozen Spike Lee films and I thought I'd seen four. How was... <laughs> <laughs> I've seen too many films, that's it. So you're trying to keep them all on board. And yeah, it's just, it's just a good, well-made heist film where it does have twists and things. And I saw them coming, like... I guess what it was going to be before the end, mm. but still, it kind of it was kind of satisfying because it was it was well set up. Yeah, it wasn't just like pulled straight out of his bum or anything. Like so often that's the case. It's like it was a Deus Ex Machina ending. It's just so stupid it makes no sense. Yeah, sadly, I, I don't really have an awful lot more to say. There's not as much around it to talk about as there was with Dog Day Afternoon. Other than it's, it's a good film and it's about bank robbery. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, you could. Make a reasonable case that this is a this is a B movie. Um, that, you know, there's, there's never going to look at this and think there's anything Oscar worthy in any part of this. Yeah, it's, it's just very competently executed in every aspect. Yeah, I see. It's a you could say it's a fairly standard thriller, elevated by a quality cast. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, and you said you could watch Clive Owen, you know, read the phone book or listen to Clive Owen read the phone. So I never liked Clive Owen. No, for a long time I never did. I have, I suspect, since Children of Men, since Alfonso Cuaron's Children of Men, mm-hmm. which was the same year as this, I think, really around about that time, that I've actually uh, I've developed a much greater regard for Clive Owen and actually rather like him now. Mm-hmm. Although he should probably lay off the accents. He, he can't really do the accents. <laughs> yeah. But I have heard worse. Yes. I'm sure if Craig was here, he would regale us with Tales of Croupier, which is, uh, <laughs> I think, the first time he 
Stumbler Upon a Murder, and probably Me Too as well, and it's a really good film. Clive Owen's been in a number of really good films, and he's one of these people I always think should should have been a bigger star. Not that he's not done a number of pretty well-regarded and fairly well-seen films, but yeah. that kind of period of time where it was seems like he would have been wanting to be the next James Bond, that sort of time frame where he felt like he really could break out and be a proper... You know, Hollywood A-lister, and that never quite came, and I think we're all the yeah. all the poorer for it. But, but you could absolutely see him being a Bond, and very much in the kind of more physical Daniel Craig mould of Bond. Mm. I could have seen that, yeah. He's done a lot of pretty good films, and uh, is well worth taking a look at a few of them. It's not all just uh, Sin City and... No, uh, I think the first time I really became aware of him, a Croupier is it's like 1998, something like that. Yes, yeah. Uh, and I have, and I'm fairly confident I've seen, but I don't remember much about it. But I think round about that time is when there was a series of BMW adverts, basically, but yeah. short films called The Driver. Yeah, was that, did that look Besson directed them or something like that? It was May have done. Because I, I was going to say, I wonder why actually Clive Owen's been punished. Uh, <laughs> because The Hire, as he was called yeah. The Hire, rather, Driver. He was the driver, they called The Hire directly, more or less, read, led to the Transporter series, uh, which was associated with Luke Besson, so that's very possibly a link there, Scott. For all of their trailers filled with deflecting rockets with D-trays. <laughs> I don't remember thinking much of the Transporter films, so I, maybe... Uh, no, I remember you and Craig hating them. I like the first Transporter film. Uh, I think it's fun. Uh, but yeah, the... It was very much a series with diminishing returns very soon after that, so... Uh, it's so long since I've seen that I can genuinely barely remember them but that trailer always stuck in my mind and i have very little recollection of the first transporter but i know that the second one which is matthew modine in it mm. it's the one that's actually set in the united states was i don't remember liking but i'll take your word for it that craig was on the same road as me with that and you, you liked them uh so maybe he was being punished given the higher led directly to that but yes <laughs> i i see the appeal of him now and then i've said it before i'll say it again no doubt I think Denzel Washington is my favourite currently working actor and I think I could watch Denzel Washington in anything, in everything and would do quite happily. Mm. Uh, like yourself, just listen to read the phone book or something. Yeah. He's also got that kind of swagger to him. Yeah. Um, and it fits, it generally fits, but it fits pretty well in this. And it's quite interesting the way he plays off of Clive Owen. Yeah. And actually Clive Owen's got a quite interesting character. Not in the same way that Dog Day Afternoon doesn't really have any villains. Not mm-hmm. enough doesn't have nothing like that a typical cops and robbers kind of way this does have villains because they do beat a guy up and you know they scare people and things mm. but given that part of what they're doing this for when you find out the backstory to arthur case christopher Lawrence's character like, okay you don't completely want clive owen to be just no mowed down by the police or something like that you're kind of on his side yeah yeah because this guy's not a good guy so that's quite interesting. Their back and forth works quite well. Uh, beyond that, I said like 300 hours ago when I started this, I didn't have anything to say. <laughs> I'm not sure I still have anything to say. I've just, I've just said words. It's not necessarily the same as having something to say. <laughs> but the only other things I want to pick up in this film, there are some of the music I really like. There's like a, like during the bank robbery and outside the bank, there's kind of 70s, 70s vibe going on feels like it could be written by Lalo Schifrin was that sort of music which really works well and then for some reason in an entirely unnecessary coda in the film there's some terrible 80s style 
jazz or jazz saxophone. No, go away. <laughs> Saxophones in the 1980s were a bad mix. Take that away, please. <laughs> and the only question I'm left with at the end is, what was going on with Denzel Washington's suits? Because they're terrible <laughs> and they fit incredibly badly. Yeah. And terrible hats at the same time. It's like, to know is that deliberate because he's a he's a cop but doesn't have a lot of money so he's just got really terrible fitting suits but <laughs> they keep, kept catching my eye like Does did he... you borrow your dad's suit son the, the leg's like a foot too long and you show up in a, like a white suit and a bow tie at some point as well yeah strangest wardrobe questionable for choices yes but um no no it's a really competent film it's just um and I would recommend it so I'm not sure there's an awful lot of off what to really get, get your tooth your teeth into discussion wise mm-hmm. yeah i remember liking it quite a lot at the time and i've liked it quite a lot now so i guess it does to that degree stand up to the passage of time but yeah it's it's a fairly standardish story there's nothing particularly unusual or innovative here but it's just really well done and i think it's, it's well worth a look if you have two hours spare and they're in the mood for something like this a great bit of uh comfort food and uh well worth looking out if you have not done so already I hadn't actually seen it at all until uh, a couple of days ago, preparing mm. for this. I remember you and Craig seeing it back when we were doing the one-liner. Mm. No particular reason I was avoiding it, other than that, you know, there are a thousand, thousand, thousand films to choose from. Yeah. This one just never made it to the top of the list, but I'm entertaining film. Really competent, great cast. Worth a watch. Nice! Right then, that's your lot. Thanks for joining us for this little discussion of these two bank robbery films. Uh, we hope you'll actually want to check them out as a result. Uh, if you've got any thoughts, feelings, opinions, beefs, please do get in contact with us. You can do so in many ways. You can go to Facebook, facebook.com slash fudsandfilm. You can email us, podcast at com, or the best and easiest way, on Twitter, at fudsonfilm. We make it easy to contact us, so please do. And I guess for now, that's it. Look after yourselves. Bye-bye. Bye.